Amen. Happy New Year to you. And uh, in God's grace, he allowed us to make another trip around the sun and uh, to see not only a new year, but a new decade. Are getting used to saying the 20s? Like, I remember growing up, I remember hearing about the roaring 20s. Now we get to live in whatever these 20s are going to be. Uh, and it remains to be seen, will we, will we complete this year? I mean, not everybody in this room will. It'll be surprising to some of us. The question will be not so much the duration of our life, but what we did with our life, how we lived it. And this series that we're in is called Famously Unfamiliar. And it's looking to draw new life from old truths because here's the reality. Uh, we know that familiarity can be a liability. Uh, being familiar with the Bible, even specific passages of scripture, um, can sometimes cause us to lapse into one of the jeopardies that familiarity brings. You've all heard the saying, familiarity can bring contempt. And most of us as, as Christ followers, we'd never want to show contempt for anything in this book, right? But we can show contempt for the word of God when it no longer astonishes us, when it no longer brings us to a place of glad submission to it. We no longer see the beauty and we no longer can really hear it. And so we're going to look at some scripture verses that they're often on coffee mugs or they're embroidered on pillows. Uh, or they're recited in kind of even like civil religion ceremonial events, that by their familiarity, we actually can find them tread-worn and no longer astonishing, no longer beautiful. And we're going to look at a, at a verse uh, that is often ignored um, because it's either co-opted or assumed uh, from Micah chapter 6, and it's the verse, He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And uh, the whole purpose of this verse, this is a verse that would be worthy of devoting our life to. Uh, it could be the total summation of everything in God's word and of what the prophets spoke. But uh, I want to set it in its context in Micah 6. And just to understand the time and the person and the situation that Micah was speaking to. Uh, Micah was a prophet, uh, and one of his contemporaries is more familiar to us. His name was Isaiah. Uh, another one of his contemporaries was Hosea. And they, they lived in the seventh century, seven centuries before Jesus, and um, probably was in some ways the golden age of Israel. The temple had not been destroyed. They'd never been dominated by a foreign power. Um, religious attendance was up. It was way, way up. Giving was up. Budget was up. I mean, Israel was the place. There were more sacrifices being offered on the altar of Israel's uh, temple and worship uh, in, in the first temple, the most glorious temple, than in any other time. And yet... Um, it was not really a time of revival. It was pseudo-revival because God never measures revival by buildings, bodies, and budgets, uh, but by what was coming out of the people in terms of the life that they lived in response to God. And so we actually have uh, Micah's contemporary Isaiah famously started uh, uh, the book of Isaiah begins with God saying, I'm actually tired of your worship, your new moon festivals, and all of this because when I look for justice, I see unrighteousness. Uh, and, and so the prophets were always sent to God's people as a mercy because left to ourselves, we become adjusted to injustice. 
or we become indifferent to our own indifference. And so the prophets always came in the midst of that. And the best way to understand the prophet that I've heard is, is they're, they're like um, a lawsuit messenger. Uh, or if you've ever had this happen, I've had it happen once where someone taps you on the shoulder and says, you've been served, subpoena, right? You ever had that happen? It's not really fun. Um, and, and the prophet begins hearing from God, and God says, I want you to speak these words. And then the prophet summons, in his essence, the people to hear what God is saying. And verse 8 is the conclusion. But let's just set it in its context. You'll see this subpoena. Um, uh, God speak to Micah, and then Micah speak. And then you'll hear the question where the, where the nation says, what should we do? What do you require, Lord? Do you require more sacrifices? That's what we're doing. And then verse 8 is the answer. So let's give attention as I read to you the word of God. Beginning at verse 1, Micah 6 says, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Now Micah begins to speak. Hear you mountains of the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I set Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then here's God's answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Lord, we enter on the threshold of a new year, a new decade. We don't know whether we'll see the end of it, even the year, much less the decade. But Lord, we would pray that we would be a people who have tender and open hearts to your word. Lord, thank you for the gift of your unchanging word. Thank you for the beauty of it. May we be freshly astonished and drawn to live out these words in Micah 6, verse 8. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the complete package, and uh, I would just submit to you that there's not really three commands here, but there's really one command that produces two effects, I think, or that is to be done out of two heart motivations. That we are to act justly, and then we're to do that out of a heart that loves mercy. Now, uh, that produces, when we live that way, an astonishment of a, of a walk that is humbled by the fact that God uses us and walks with us in that. And these words, first, to act justly, we, we can often um, 
kind of confuse or opt out of this text because it's often co-opted by people who don't really understand how it all goes together. Uh, it's not just a life of social activism and social justice because it is a social justice that produces a humble walk with God. One of the problems in our world today is where so much activism is just a competition that alienates people from one another. It certainly has no place for loving God with all their heart, strength, mind, and soul. This whole package is a justice that loves mercy. Now, um, we can think like, well, I don't have much to do with justice. I, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. I'm not someone who's been charged with that. And I want you to see that this verse is not about the professionals who we depend upon to enforce the rule of law and to make sure that there is equity for all people because it says he has shown you, O mortal. He has shown you as an individual. This is something that is, that is applicable for every individual in the singular. You don't have to be a professional. And, and sometimes we can say, well, Justice, I'm not, I'm not pouring myself out in one particular category uh, as commendable as those categories are. So, so how does my life contribute to a life of, of justice and mercy? But I submit to you that this vision for justice is something that is through and through the pages of the Bible, and it really is an astonishingly beautiful vision. Uh, God had said that he gave his law in the Old Testament so that even all the nations would see uh, the distinctive grandeur and beauty of, of the life uh, that he set forth, and so that the way that they were to live their individual lives was to create uh, such a rippling effect of beauty that it would astonish the unbelief of the nations into a receptive hearing. Because they would say, this people is not just living for their own tribal deity. And they're not just living for their own advantage, but, uh, but they are living for the advantage of everyone in a way that astonishes us. Uh, the Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkey, who I think is one of the best Old Testament scholars, he says, justice, the person who lives a righteous and just life. And by the word, this word for, for justice is the word mishpat in the Hebrew. It occurs over 200 times uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, to say, where does the Bible speak about my need to live a life of justice is kind of like saying, where can I find salt in the ocean? It's just all over the place in the Bible. And, and this, this sense of, of this word and this calling was for every individual citizen of Israel to, to live this out. And there was in the case law, you know, the, the part of the Bible that when you say, I'm going to read through the whole Bible in a year, that you get stuck on, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, then you give up. Uh, that part was really to break this down, not for the professionals, the judges, the prophets, the priests, the authorities, who had a distinctive role, but it was for every citizen of Israel to live differently because of how they had been impacted by this. Uh, and this call to act and do justice was, was put into the everyday realm of life. And one of the places that we see that, that affected every Israelite uh, is in Leviticus 19. It's kind of a curious verse. But it was a verse that because everybody lived basically from, you know, we think of the from farm to table movement as something that is novel and unique. Well, if you were an Israelite, every, all Israelites lived from farm to table. <laughs> they lived, as it were, from backyard to table. Now, I relate well to this verse because I, 
I see no purpose for grass in my yard. I want to turn it all into garden. I want it to produce food, not flowers. And I'm all into this. I'm ready to rototill my neighbor's chem lawn yard uh, if I can get the chemicals out of it and make, make vegetables something useful. But in Israel, this was the way they lived. And I, I know the first time I went to Zimbabwe, I was struck by in the high-density townships, like every space was used to grow vegetables. And God said something to the Israelites. He says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. Do not pick up what the harvesters drop. In the same, it is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. And you would be saying, what does this have to do with me? I don't garden. We're not in an agrarian society or whatever. Uh, and and here's the basic biblical principle is when there's a, a general principle of equity, because all of the commands come from an unchanging God that revealing something about his own heart, then there is a, a permanent application that is sustained. And, and what this text is saying for the Israelite is that God forbid them to try to maximize and to squeeze and wring out of their, even their agrarian culture, everything that they could gain simply for their own benefit. And God did this because he was weaving into their lives a kind of dependency upon him, but also a beautiful fabric of, of justice so that those whose lives were not producing, whose gardens were not producing anything, due to illness or calamity or simply not having the clout or the power uh, to plant the garden, to yield the garden, that he was saying that you, you are forbidden from pushing to the margins to squeeze out everything for yourself. And I just want to say, as we started a new year, I felt this was so important for us because a lot of New Year's resolutions, if you look at them, they're simply pushing us to squeeze more out of our life, our physical health, uh, our finances, uh, our emotional energies, our time, and they're really very self-centered, self-improvement projects. And this was, there's a lot of pressure in our world to do that. I know uh, one of my uh, children was working for a, one of the chain grocery stores and they, they liked the job at first because they said, you know what, everybody needs groceries, so it's really interesting. Doylestown is a lot more interesting than uh, I ever imagined because like every kind of person comes through and they were enjoying it until it became obvious that the standard by which all cashiers are measured was how many items they could scan over an hour or over a shift. Didn't matter whether they got them all right. Didn't matter whether they interacted courteously with the customers. Didn't matter that maybe they had somebody who was trying to, yeah, pay by check. <gasps> you know, that didn't matter. But what mattered was productivity. And it kind of robbed, it did. It robbed that job of any sense of joy. And so they quickly wanted to move on to something else. I've got another one of my, uh, my children. <laughs> He's 30. Uh, serving in the legal profession in New York City. And, and um, he says that many of his peers are pressured uh, to make sure that every six minutes, I thought it was once in every seven, but a lawyer told me that no, it's one in every six. Every six minutes you produce something that is billable. Because one six, six minutes is one-tenth of an hour. You can make some cash. And so I, I hope you don't live in that kind of job. <laughs> that's, in, that's dehumanizing. 
but it's pushing us to like squeeze everything out of it. And then, you know, just even yesterday, I get in my email box from some Christian organizations how pastors can get more done and like squeeze everything out of your time. And there's something, you know, that we can all do to make our time more efficient. But, but if that becomes our God, our focus, we've actually missed God while seeking to do things for God. And we lose our focus on the Lord of the work because we're trying to do the work of the Lord in our own strength. And so this command, I think it has a general equity to us to deliver us from trying to push out and squeeze all that we can get out of life and time and emotions and relationships and yes, finances for ourselves by saying, not only that nothing that we own ultimately belongs to us, but by saying, and I want this to be very clear, the margins of our lives do not belong to us. God has already claimed them for someone else, someone in need. That the reason God gives us what we have is not just to bless us, but that God has someone else in mind. So I was thinking about this, you know, very, very personally, like uh, of someone who like works right next door to me. Like I, I have been blessed with a really, uh, a lot of great clothes and a nice wardrobe and some really stylish, colorful <laughs> wardrobe. And I became aware that like right next door to me is a pastor who serves on our staff, who's a little wardrobe challenge. He doesn't really have, he dresses kind of grab, drab, you know, grays, black, muted colors. And I'm like, I have some extra things. And so I decided just out of the largesse of sensing that, you know, God's given me this beautiful red sports coat that would really dress up his life. And then I just wanted to gift that to him along with a nice green shirt to just like, you know, upgrade him a little bit. That this was not for me, it was through me for someone else. And all teasing aside, I do think that there are a lot of things that God places in our lives, and not just the things, material things, but emotional energy, listening ears, time, that God gives us not to push to the edge for ourselves, but for someone else. And I don't want to provoke you to envy, but my father-in-law just gave me a car and it's an Audi. That might make you envy, except it's a 1999 Audi. <laughs> and one of the reasons we said yes, he said, I could just junk it. It's, you know, only a few hundred dollars probably of its worth left. It's got 218,000 miles on its odometer. But I, we said, yeah, we'll, we'll take it because I can get it registered for a couple hundred bucks in Pennsylvania. And I think that might be useful to somebody that we could pass it on to. So we'll take it and we'll see what, what you know, and, and if it ultimately is undrivable, we'll, we'll give it to the Salvation Army. But, but I think so many things that we have are given for God to do something for someone else. And I want you to see that that is part of justice. Now, I want you to understand, we sometimes talk carelessly about tithes and offerings the tithes and offerings didn't come from the margins. So if you think of the margins as like the aisles, and if you're on an aisle seat, maybe those, you know, but the, then there were to be a, a proportionate tithe given from the field. And, and they were to give their first fruits. They were to give intentionally. They were to give a proportion to not spend it all on themselves and to set that aside for the Lord. And then they were forbidden from touching what was in the margins. So God was programming the life of the Israelite to say, my life is not my own, what I have is not my own, and part of God's gracious provision for me, I'm not supposed to touch. Uh, and that was to be left so that the poor who show up as the main objects of God's justice. In the Old Testament, 
God said to Israel, you can tell how well you're walking with me, not by asking your prophets, priests, and kings, but ask the orphan, the widow, the refugee, the immigrant, the poor, ask them how you're doing. And, and God regularly said, Psalm 65, I am the God of, and he would, he would list this, what some call the quartet of God, and say, how is it working out for them? I think a church can ask that. We can sometimes say, how are we doing? Well, find, find the disadvantage, the people without clout in Doylestown, and, and, and one way to say, how are we doing? Uh, and, and so this wasn't meant for them. It, wasn't, it, was, it was meant to be given over. And so we find, a, we find an example of this. And, and again, uh, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, uh, it's a beautiful story. If you're not, you should dip into the book of Ruth. But Ruth tells the story of someone who kind of fits all these categories that God often emphasizes. Um, she was a widow. She was a foreigner. She was... In, in kind of a personal refugee status coming to Israel, uh, she was poor. <clears throat> and the very reason she survives is because there was this righteous man named Boaz. And Boaz was not, he was a successful farmer, but he was not gleaning to the edge of his fields. And so he let her come, and, uh, and again, this was justice, not mercy, but he let her uh, glean from his fields. But then in the midst of doing this that justice required of him, he did more than that, and so he, he showed himself to be a man who loved mercy. And if you, you read in Ruth 2, he, he said, first of all, um, hey, come have some roasted grain. We'll get you a hot lunch, and uh, we'll let you dip some, uh, uh, some bread and some wine. We'll give you some refreshment. And then, <clears throat> unbeknownst to her, he told the workers in the field, he said, um, don't be so efficient in harvesting the crops. Let a bunch drop to the floor or leave some grapes on the vine. And then he went to her and he said, hey, don't go to someone else's house to glean um, because you may not be safe. I've told my workers to protect you. So come back here and keep gleaning in the field. And she brought so much home. It was a huge abundance. And so we find Boaz doing justice and loving mercy to go over and beyond. And what did that do? He changed the narrative for this woman, Ruth, Right? But he also got to participate in the narrative of Jesus Christ because the descendant of Ruth leads us up to David, the forerunner of Jesus. So he got to not only change the narrative for Ruth, but he got to write himself into the narrative of Jesus. And, and it's Jesus who is at the pinnacle of doing justice and loving mercy. So we think of the, the life of Jesus and how he lived this out, not, not pushing to the margin, to the margins, to the margins. Um, uh, it was 2017, I went away on a prayer retreat and this was one of the main things I got to try to apply and I've been trying to apply it and failing constantly at it. Um, uh, believing the Christian life is try, fail, and then fail a little better and fail a little better and fail a little better. So I'm failing better at this. Um, but in 2017, I was... Um, really concentrated on a book written by a pastor I respected, John Ortberg, who was seeking spiritual mentoring from someone who I have a ton of respect for, Dallas Willard. And John Ortberg basically came and said, I'm losing touch with God. Pretty serious concern for a Christian, a crisis for a pastor, right? But it's real. And so he came for him for mentoring. And Dallas Willard said, after hearing him out and meeting with him, I think a few times, he says, there's one thing one thing I think that you could do that would really help you be in touch with God. And so John Ortberg's all ears, I'm all ears. 
And then he says this curious thing. He says, you need to work to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. Eliminate hurry in your life. Sounds a little odd at first. But he said, nothing good happens when we are hurried and harried. And that often comes from trying to squeeze all the margins out of life. We're not available for people. We're not available for God. And as he, as he packed that out, he said, imagine, look at the life of Jesus Christ. The, the radiant, incredible life of Jesus Christ in all four gospels screams out to us that this was God in the flesh with the greatest job description anybody's ever had. You may think your job is high pressure, high demands, but I don't think anybody's job description here is to save the world, right? That's his job description. Incarnating and expressing in every thought, word, and deed the, re the full reality of the fullness of deity that always dwelt in Jesus' earthly body. And yet Jesus was never, ever, ever in a hurry. His disciples sometimes thought he was, right? They said, hey, you don't have, you're the savior of the world. You don't have time for these kids. Run along. And what did Jesus say? He rebuked them sternly. He said, do not prevent these little ones from coming to me for such is the kingdom of God. And, and we find in Jesus evidence that like he must have played with kids pretty regularly. They don't have any clout. But, but he played with them regularly because he knew their games. He knew they liked to play wedding and funeral and dress up and all this stuff. He understood them. Some of our favorite stories about Jesus' most beloved healings happen as interruptions into his schedule, right? Like we, we have one account where Jesus is on the way to perform a resurrection. That's pretty big stuff, resurrect a dead girl. And, and a woman kind of interrupts him, touching him because she's got this chronic, but evidently not a life-threatening issue. And, you know, I, I would have pulled the resurrection card and said, hey, um, I'll get to you later, but I'm working on a resurrection. I got to move. But Jesus stops and draws her out and has this incredible dialogue with her. It, it reminds me, I have a, a doctor friend who, who said that when he worked in the hospital and they used to have those code those codes that a patient was coding, he said that he always made sure that he didn't run. He always actually slowed himself down. And when the code sounded for a patient, he always just walked slowly. He said he knew the nurses would be hurrying, but he knew that he learned from experience that if he ran there, he would just be breathless and would not be in the best condition to make the decisions that needed to be made. And so he went there calming himself, getting himself possessed to make the right decision. I think we find that kind of composure in Jesus. And again, um, who did not live this breathless, frazzled, fried kind of life that we can sometimes legitimize because we've got so much on our plates. And Jesus wants to deliver us from that. In fact, the commands of God are this incredibly... Um, beautiful pattern that society would so benefit from. And I, I, I love recently reading of, a, uh, of uh, an eminent pastor in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, who, was, who, who said he finally reached a breaking point in needing sabbatical after, uh, after a long time. And he said that, that he had a dialogue with a woman. He said, why don't you take a day off a week? And um, he said to the woman, well, I can't take a day off because the devil doesn't take a day off. And sure, her retort to him stopped him in his tracks because she said, I didn't realize that the devil was your role model. 
We don't let him set the agenda. God gave us six in one. I had another pastor friend who said, this year my resolution is to take a day off. And, and kind of sarcastically, I was trying to help him out. Kind of like, oh, wow, did you come up with that idea? One day out of seven. It's not righteous. It's not righteous to squeeze everything we can squeeze. It's not God's pattern. Um, it, it's not something we should view as, as godly. Uh, and so uh, this pattern, again, is... is is something that God has given that we can do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God as, as we recognize that it all belongs to God. Uh, we determine everything we have, a, a proportion of that, and then there are offerings of generosity after we determine that proportion, and then there are the margins, and then there's making ourselves available for God. And I find, again, when I do that, when I create margins and buffers, and again, don't be discouraged if you say, boy, you know, right now I can hardly make the payments that I need to make on bills. This is not something that you can enact in your Christian life in one week, one month. You know, maybe you need to take Financial Peace University here and, and, and ask God to guide you into finances and time and such. But I do believe you can, in, you can begin to implement this in terms of your emotional resources and the use of your time by just creating some buffers in your time. But I've been in situations where I have just foolishly planned a meeting at one and a meeting at two and a meeting at three and just like move from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting, almost like that lawyer with billable hours, but I'm not billing anyone, but it just, you move breathlessly and the one thing that is most important that we all have to offer to one another is our sense of walking in the presence of God. And, and if we forfeit that, we've really forfeited our usefulness. And, and so in, in times when, by God's grace, I, I am failing a little better at trying to do this, uh, I found it builds. And, and God often uses the, those buffer zones as the most important thing that maybe I got done that day. So, you know, on Christmas Eve, I told you about, um, you know, I was working on the message uh, in the sweet spot of the sauna because I hate winter. And this guy, uh, Quentin, that I began talking to, still pray for him, still want to continue conversation with him. Um, but going out the doors on Christmas Eve, somebody said, hey, I'm in the same place as Quentin. I would like to believe in God, but I can't. Could we talk? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm all booked up. I don't have any time to talk to you. No. <laughs> but you see, if one thing leads to another. And this is the way God often uses our obedience, that one act of obedience leads to another opportunity for obedience. And, and that as we're faithful in small things, things just continue to build. And I'll tell you a story that happened uh, last fall as I was really trying to be aware of this in the temptation of a frenetic pace of life. Um, it was that time between 5 and 7 p.m., 7 p.m. meeting coming up that, that evening, uh, and uh, dinner's on the stove, and get a knock at the door from an unsolicited salesperson. Now, we all love that in Bucks County, right? <laughs> and it was a pushy salesperson. And it was somebody selling something that I had not ever indicated an interest in, and didn't, wasn't in that moment aware how desperately I needed it. And they knocked at the door and they said, and what got my attention, because I've been speaking, thinking about how hard it is to be an immigrant in a country, is they, they spoke with an accent. They're actually from Ireland. So he came to the door and he said, sir, I, I driving around the neighborhood, I noticed you've got a pretty shabby driveway and it's all spiderwebbed and falling apart. And, and 
I'd like to give you a price you couldn't refuse and come tomorrow with a bunch of asphalt and redo the whole driveway for you. Uh, and uh, I'll give you a price you can't refuse. It's uh, cash up front and uh, we'll get this thing done. Now, you know, you're, you're pressed between the five o'clock and the seven o'clock. It's a salesman you don't expect to see. It's cash up front, you know, all the alarm bells go off. Everybody else in the family that's overhearing me at the door is like, close the doors, run, give him a polite pastor's rush, right, you know, send him away. But there was something to me that said, uh, let's talk. So I went out and we walked, walked around and, and uh, I gave him a price that I thought was ridiculous. Uh, it was about 20% of what I had heard quoted before. And, uh, and he said, deal. And then I said, well, let me talk to someone who you've done some work for. And he said, fine, hop in the truck. So we hopped in the truck, came back, got all checked out. And, um, decided to go, go ahead, but I said, no cash up front, cash after the job. Uh, and, and so he, he came and he had a whole crew of people. I don't know how they did it, but, but, but they beautifully redid this spiderweb driveway that was falling apart that I couldn't even, uh, you know, put the basic seal coat on. It was so, such a mess. And beautiful job. All, the, all these workers on the side, you know, hey, God would want me to like just stop and engage these guys. I want to find out more about what they're about and where they're from. And as I, I began to talk to him, this guy's name was Thomas. He told me a story of some really heartbreaking tragedy in his life. I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking to, to the standpoint that, that in a few moments, like he's, I've got my hands on his shoulders and praying for him in this situation. And, and I, I thought that was just like such an example of God breaking through. And I was so humbled by the opportunity really to be his pastor um, as he's new to our country and working hard to eke out a living uh, and, and he left, and I was thanking God for that. But then just a few minutes later, I get a rap on the door. Knock, knock, knock. And it was the original sales guy of the whole enterprise, William. Uh, and he said, uh, are you a pastor? And the reason he said that is because Thomas had said to me, and what provoked this conversation was he said, I just need you to do one thing. I'm fine to do it for the price we talked about but I need you to lie to your neighbors about how much you paid. And I need you to tell them that you paid about three times as much. <laughs> and he says, you can do that for me. That's not much to ask, I'm sure. And by God's grace, immediately I said, no, no can do. I will not lie for you. I, I can say that I won't share what it was, but, and that was what led to that whole conversation because he says, what do you do for a living <laughs> that you won't lie for me? <laughs> And so his buddy William comes to the door and says, I hear you, pastor. He says, you know, um, I'm coming to your door because um, I have an uncle who's a pastor in the UK and he's been nagging at me for years and years to give my life to Jesus Christ. And he says, but, but I've been giving my life to the beer and to the beer and you know that that life isn't so good. So, so two weeks ago, I got so tired of myself giving my life to the beer that I decided to give my life to Jesus Christ. And I called my uncle and my uncle says, you every day he's been talking to me and nagging me and he's been saying, William, William, you've got to find someone to tell. And he says, I don't want to tell the guys on my work crew because they'll just make fun of me and, and they'll make things difficult for me. They won't believe me. I've been in a lot of trouble. I've been, uh, been in living such a broken life. But I thought that since you're a pastor, you'd be safe to tell. <laughs> and so I said, William, do you, do you have a Bible? And he says, no, I don't have a Bible. 
And I had one that I'd been keeping on the margins. It was a really nice study Bible, still shrink-wrapped, but didn't have a purpose. And I had a duplicate copy, and I ran up, got it. And, and, and just in the whole midst of that, even uh, one of my children was observing all this, just marveling at how God had woven this whole opportunity together. And, and I think, like, that's, that's the unique opportunity that stands before us every day. That's the opportunity that makes this verse, I think, such a beautiful summation of how we can live our life because as we pursue saying, I wanna live according to God's commandments, I wanna do justice. I wanna do justice out of a heart that wants to go even beyond justice. I wanna do mercy and I wanna walk humbly with this God that, that we become not only the better version of ourselves, the unhurried, unfrazzled version of ourselves, but we become like the God who redeemed us. Because this walk of justice and mercy is really the, it's, it's the pinnacle of what Jesus did for us. We know that on the cross, according to Romans 3, it says on the cross, God was revealing a righteousness that, that in a sense has come to us apart from the law, that by presenting Jesus Christ on the cross, he was fulfilling justice. Yes, he was absorbing in his own body all of the violations of all the commands, heart, word, and deed uh, that we have violated. But he also on that cross was securing for us not only a clean slate and a new life to start with, uh, but he was giving us the power of the Holy Spirit to come inside of our hearts. He was not only wiping the slate clean and saying, I'm no longer offended at you, but he was saying, I'm now gonna call you my son or my daughter and bring you into the family. And not only are you no longer on the offender uh, row outside, but I'm also going to write you into my son's will. And I'm going to make you a co-inheritor with my son, Jesus. And I am going to call you to reign with him in his kingdom when he comes in his glory forever and ever and ever. It is a God who loves justice, but also who loves to astonish us with his mercy and give us a new life and a new purpose and a new narrative that we get to participate in. That's, that's the gospel message. That, that's the basis of all of this. That's the heart behind all of this. And as we begin a new year and new decade, God says, that's the opportunity for our lives. Uh, to match with not only lip, but with walk and testimony to make ourselves available to this God. And, and I can tell you when God shows up in that, in that way, it always leads to this sense of astonishment that God, you would use the likes of me. You, you would use me and you would allow me to perceive who you are in this walk, in this one fleeting, precious life that we know not how long will be given, but that we can live in the most worthy and eternally significant way. As we begin this new year, I invite you to that life. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, there is no more beautiful, lasting uh, way uh, worthy of the weight of your soul and longings than this life. If you've given yourself to Jesus Christ, but, but need to renew that, what a verse this would be to say, God, this year... I, I want to live according to your commands. I want to do it out of a heart that loves mercy, having received your mercy at the cross. I want to walk humbly with you. I can tell you, humility will never be found by trying to think less of yourself, but it will be found in thinking of yourself less. And the only way to think of yourself less is to think of God more. Humility is found by confidence in God. 
and by walking with this God and being astounded and placing ourselves underneath his guidance. And like the old hymn says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he, he gives on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Let's live this life of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Let's pray. Father, again, <clears throat> on this new threshold, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning to us. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for the beauty of this calling, the calling that Jesus himself gave his life to perfectly, unflinchingly. He never missed an opportunity. And Lord, we would just want to give ourselves to, to you, to surrender ourselves, to make much of Jesus Christ in our lives, our relationships, with our time, with our emotional energy, with our resources, with all that we have, Lord, we yield it back to you and we pray that we would walk this out and you would remind us every day this year of the privilege of walking humbly with you in Jesus' name, amen.